Hi, you're tuning in to Rusty Thomas, where once a week he brings the brilliance of scripture to every dynamic of life. For the last 40 years, Rusty has served the Lord as a father, minister, and political figure on the streets, churches, and capitals in our nation and abroad. You are going to hear compelling truths that will prayerfully build up your faith and equip you to meet the challenges of life with the confidence of God's Word. This is Kingdom Moments with my father, Rusty Thomas. Well, howdy folks. You're with Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas. So glad you're here with me today. God's grace and peace be unto you and your precious family. In Jesus' name, well, it's been quite a ride lately. Back from our whirlwind tour, we went up to the uh, frozen tundra of Nashville, Tennessee. Got hit by an incredibly cold storm, which incidentally, they called it Heather. And if you recall, we were going up there with the I Stand with the 10 campaign well we made our plans and of course god directs our step the uh storm hit it was freezing cold and i gotta be honest with you i've been down south way too long i am so wimpy now i did grow up in connecticut was familiar with hawk you know the cold and the wind and all that kind of stuff but boy i have just my blood has thinned out so man yeah it was yeah it was it was something <laughs> being there uh had to get you know geared up and uh but anyway we uh we did the best we can with what uh, was offered what was there um we did have a, a monday night rally and so many christians braved the weather and uh, sacrificed and came uh, to support their brethren uh, who are facing, you know, some serious charges and some long-term consequences. Uh, It was a beautiful thing. It was awesome. And um, I want to give a personal shout-out to Pastor Shelby Hazard from Parkway Baptist Church. Um, He kept those doors open for us when you know conventional wisdom was like shut it down the weather's bad this is a controversial deal um but to his credit uh, he stood strong for the lord and he wasn't ashamed of his brethren so shout out to pastor shelby thank you so much dear brother for holding the line and providing hospitality to the saints uh of course when the um storm hit the court trial was postponed and i believe it's still postponed as of this recording and so continue to pray uh, for our brothers and sisters and i'll do my best to keep you updated and informed on their progress and what is going on But I I will say, uh, again, we'll just got to put this into the book of coincidences, that the storm that did hit, they did call Heather. And I guess what's funny about that, uh, the one Christian rescuer 
that is actually now the Lord's prisoner, Heather Adonai, uh, she came to Nashville shackled. And so, yeah, just a coincidence that Heather's coming to face <clears throat> the federal beast and the storm that hits just happens to be Heather. And so make of that what, what you wish, but I just thought it was kind of neat. Um, but anyway, um, from what we understand, um, that storm gave the the Department of Justice, the federal court, and the prosecuting attorneys uh, a time to reflect on what they are doing to these 10. And from what I understand, there seems to be a softening, which is awesome. That has been our prayer and our cry. Um, and, and so I think right now they're considering negotiating some deals, which if you remember when I've touched on this in times past, uh, you know, I've shared, uh, you know, I've faced uh, five counts of face. And, um, and each time, regardless of the administration, Republican or Democrat, uh, the feds wanted to negotiate a deal. For some reason, they do not want to bring uh, any face charges to trial. And you could maybe guess why that might be. Uh, but I think they know on its face, pardon the pun, it's, it's unconstitutional. And um, it could be taken off the books, just like the Dobb decision took Roe versus Wade off the books. But anyway, regardless of that, uh, continue to pray uh, for our brethren. There seems to be a softening. There seems to be a willingness to negotiate. And if they come up with a deal that doesn't uh, violate the conscience of the Christian rescuers, uh, this could be God's answer of our prayer, where they're delivered out of the hands of the Department of Justice that we know has been weaponized uh, to go after uh, their perceived uh, political enemies. So praise be to God. Uh, from Nashville, uh, we went over to just, you know, got back in the next day. We were over at Fort Myers, Florida, and we met a tremendous pastor from South Carolina, Ben Gardner. What a solid guy, uh, just a quality uh, Christian brother who pastors. He's a businessman, and, uh, and he takes the gospel of the kingdom to the streets. And so we, he was with us in Nashville, and sure enough, he came down to Fort Myers, Florida, and uh, helped lead the charge against the gates of hell, the Planned Parenthood there. And um, anyway, we, uh, we just gave him a lot of heaven uh, at the Fort Myers Planned Parenthood. Um, his son, Aaron, is down there, and he works with uh, Tom Askell's church and Founders Ministry. And so... You know, I think the Lord has put together another relationship, another kingdom relationship, you know, building this network uh, throughout the United States of America and just connecting, you know, sons, servants, and soldiers 
uh, in the battle for the souls of men, the lives of children, and the future of our nation and of this planet. Which brings me, segues way into uh, the topic for today, which I wanted to touch on. And this was the message that I had delivered uh, at the Monday night rally uh, where uh, some of the defendants came. We were able to love on them, surround them, pray for them, and uh, to raise uh, some finances for their family. And I'm pleased to announce, I think we came close to reaching the goal. I wanted to raise $10,000, 1000 per family. And I know that's, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what they may be facing in the future. But I just wanted those 10 to know that we love them, we care for them, we're going to fulfill the law of Christ and help bear their burdens. And so it was an awesome display of, of just unity and God's love and care uh, for his own. It was awesome, brothers and sisters. But anyways, I really felt compelled that I needed to deliver a message up, uh, based upon suffering, particularly uh, redemptive suffering. And so, you know, I kind of shared my heart uh, going into the message because just before I was leaving, one of my sons just came to me and said, Daddy, do you ever get nervous doing this? Do you ever, like, get afraid? Uh, and, of course, I, I shared with him, of course, son. I mean, we're, you know, we're not supermen. We're not superwomen. We're, we're not invincible. I mean, we're we're brothers and sisters in Christ that have a feet of clay. You know, we're, we're subject to, you know, all kinds of feelings and impulses and temptations and things of this nature. But I shared with him one of the quotes that pretty much has kept us through the years. It came from uh, Randall Terry back in the day, in the early rescue days. But he would just share that courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing what's right in spite of your fears. And so I, you know, I kind of was sharing with the brethren, you know, like when you're doing rescue, uh, honestly, it is sort of like a spiritual high. It's kind of like a spiritual narcotic because out of all the things I have ever done to serve our Lord, you know, interposing at the death camp, putting yourself between the oppressor and the victim to rescue the victim, like that is the most you kind of really, you know, think and feel like I'm actually following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and sort of living out the example that he has left for us. And so what, while you're doing it, I mean, your adrenaline's pumped. I mean, you're spiritually, I mean, you're, you're, you're experiencing sort of the glory and the power and the presence of God. And I mean, it's powerful. It's awesome, you know. Uh, but then, like any other spiritual high or any other high, you know, it eventually wears off. And then, you know, you got to face the music. 
you know, what is the city government going to do? What's the state government going to do? What's the federal government, you know, going to do? And then, of course, you know, there's charges, uh, you know, starting with the locals and then the feds step in and then those charges increase and the potential penalties increase. And so, yeah, by that time, the, the high is worn off and reality, you know, is setting in. And before you know it, you got this sword, you know, hanging over your head. And I mentioned to those that gathered, I, I remember when uh, we were facing uh, face charges from the federal government, and I'm trying to prepare my wife and my children, um, you know, in the prospect that their husband and their father may be taken away from them for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, going through all that and, you know, praying and trusting God and, you know, holding on to the scripture that says that a man that fears God, you know, for his children, that shall become their refuge. And, you know, calling out to God, you're a father to the fatherless. And if I am taken away, would you please, you know, watch over my family? Please keep them as the apple of your eye, you know, just going through all that. And I remember going to my first wife, Liz, and sharing with her my concerns and my struggles. And uh, she didn't talk much, but when she did, she dropped truth bombs. <laughs> I'm telling you what, there was no coming back once she spoke, you know. Uh, but she said, you know, hon, a sacrifice really is not to be considered a sacrifice if it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. And that was not what I was expecting. I was expecting, you know, a hug, you know, it's okay, honey, I'll be here when you get back, and all this kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, she was just, you know, kind of bringing me back to the reality. We did this just to sacrifice, to, you know, sacrifice on the behalf of these children, right? No greater love hath any man than lay down his life for his friend, right? So, you know, it's just living out the Christian ethic here. So anyway, I kind of, you know, shared that and, and kind of try to, to give them some insight to perhaps what the brethren was going through right now, what they were facing, you know, the reality hitting their marriages, their 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 spouses, their children, and what they're going through right now to prepare their families. Um, yeah, it's uh, a little, you know, there's a struggle. It's a little disconcerting, you know, not knowing, you know, what the future holds. Um, but in sharing that, you know, I was just letting them know, listen, hey, if you're going to fight this battle, you know, for the souls of men and the lives of these children and the future of our nation, you know, there is no possible way that you could avoid the reality of suffering. And just being human, well, let's face it, uh, you know, our natural tendency is to avoid suffering, you know, pretty much at all costs. I mean, we like our comfort. We like our ease, right? We like to be pampered. We like to be indulged, you know, and in some ways, 
you know, there's there's sort of a biblical precedent, right? Like no man, you know, kind of hates his own flesh, like abuses his own flesh. And, of course, God uses that word to um, kind of convict husbands on how they are to love their wives. Like, you know, the two shall be one flesh. And so a man wouldn't go out of his way to hurt his flesh, abuse his flesh, or do something detrimental to his own flesh. No, we want to be healthy. We want to be strong, right? I mean, that's the natural, um, you know, inspiration that most men have. And you got to be sick in the head if you didn't want that, right? You know, you have to be suicidal um, to not want to nourish your flesh. But, but for Christians who serve the Lord, we have to understand, you know, our, our comfort and ease uh, is actually detrimental for us to have, you know, kingdom impact and effectually serving our Lord uh, in spreading the gospel of the kingdom. And so I just brought up the reality you know, that if you're going to be effective in this battle, we, we do have to get over two primary issues. You know, the death issue and the suffering issue. Uh, we, we just have to, you know, submit those things uh, to the Lord and just trust Him, you know, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to death. Uh, you know, our life, our souls are in his hand, and that's, that's okay. That's good. Amen? And so I brought up the reality that, uh, you know, mankind uh, is going to suffer, whether you're a pagan, whether you're a Christian, whether you're in a cult or following a false religion. It doesn't make a difference whether you're saved or not. We're going to suffer in this world. We live in a fallen world. Man has a sinful nature. There are three enemies that are arrayed against us. Our own sinful flesh, you know, the demonic realm, head by Satan himself, and this illegitimate world system that's in rebellion to God's loving and just rule. Well, all those enemies are arrayed against us. And they do impact us. And one of the ways it impacts us is we suffer. And we suffer for two primary reasons. We suffer for what is wrong as a consequence of our sin. And we suffer for doing what is right in obedience to God. And here's the thing. If you look at the the Apostle Peter in his epistles, you know, that is one of the things that he shared. He's, you know, he said we shouldn't suffer because of our sin. We shouldn't suffer because we're doing evil. But he says if we suffer for being a Christian, God's Spirit and power rests upon us. Then I shared with the brethren gathering there, you know, I, man, I have tasted a lot of what this world has to offer. You know, I've, I've had a lot of experiences in this world, you know, from the military to Hollywood, traveling, I mean, you name it. I've just pretty much drank a belly full of death of worldliness 
and worldly pleasures and things this world has to offer. But I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, that there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that compares to when the love and the presence and the power of God by his Holy Spirit just like melts you to the ground. I mean, just experiencing his love, his goodness, his presence, and his power. It's awesome, brothers and sisters. And I got to tell you, every time that I ever experience like danger or threat, um, that's pretty much what I experienced. I felt the overwhelming love of God, and I felt the overwhelming love of God for my persecutors. And so, yeah, my first instinct was like the Lord, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Just like Stephen, do not hold this charge against them, even though these people are hurting the Lord and hurting Stephen. Okay, but when you're walking in the Lord, when you're led by the Spirit, brothers and sisters, you get to experience the Word of God, uh, like those who've gone before us. And so that's the, that is the reality, right? And, and it's also, again, the example left for us by our Lord himself. You look at the book of Hebrews, one of the most outstanding statements uh, in the scriptures. I mean, it's, uh, well, it may be outstanding. It's not the word, but a puzzling passage of scripture where it talks about our Lord, Jesus Christ, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, if this is the second person of the Godhead, right? This is, he's part of the triune God. And he's the God-man. He's the perfect, sinless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And yet, he's learning obedience by the things he suffered well you, you know you go through his life and ministry and i mean just two blatant examples stand out immediately uh if you remember when he went to be baptized of john and of course john was kind of like uh, i'm not sure if this is the way it's supposed to be i think i need to be baptized of you i shouldn't be baptizing you jesus and, uh, of course, the Lord says, John, we have to fulfill all righteousness. And then right after that, the heavens open and Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And what happens after that? The Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness to be tested of the devil. And, you know, 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water, suffering hunger, suffering thirst, blazing heat of the day, cold at night, and then not an imp, not a principality, not a power, Satan himself throwing manifold temptations at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I think we could say that he suffered. But at the end of the day, he doesn't cave like the first Adam. He responds with, it is written. And after that great temptation, the angels come and minister to him, right? And then, of course, we see it so powerfully demonstrated 
in the garden of Gethsemane. I mean, you talk about suffering, and sisters. You're talking about physical, mental, and spiritual, emotional anguish, like to the nth degree, right? And so we know he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He said, not my will, but thine be done. Praise his holy name. And so when we see these things happening, brothers and sisters, you know, we have to understand there is a truth called redemptive suffering. And that was the message I was delivering to the saints that are facing an uncertain future right now. And throughout church history, you know, we've heard it stated again and again and again. And what is that statement? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So the church has discerned that whenever the church goes through persecution or martyrdom or suffers loss for the cause of Christ, that it's sort of like uh, there's a planet, I forget what it's called, chamomile, I may have that wrong, but there's a certain plant that when you step on it and crush it, it spreads, it grows. And that really has been the heritage and the history and the legacy of the Church of Jesus Christ. And we know this is historically true. But how many also know it's difficult for us to embrace? And so I brought up this quote, I, I think it was from A.W. Tozer, I may be mistaken, but it definitely sounds like an A.W. Tozer quote, but whoever, he said this, we love the old saints, missionaries, martyrs, and reformers, our Luthers, Bunyans, Wesleys, and Asburys, etc. We will write their biographies, reverence their memories, frame their epitaphs, and build their monuments. We will do anything except imitate them. We cherish the last drop of their blood, but watch carefully for the first drop of our own. And at that point, brothers and sisters, I had the saints facing federal charges to stand up. And I wanted everybody to look at them. And I wanted to show them that right now, in the congregation of the Lord, they are the Lord's free men and free women. Now, we did have, again, one, one dear lady, Heather. Um, she came shackled to Nashville. And so she clearly is the Lord's prisoner. But my point being is depending on how this trial, you know, shakes out, you know, these men and women standing before you could very well become the Lord's prisoner. And so if that is the case, I just shared with them what Jesus told Pilate. You could have no power at all against me unless 
it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And then I just kind of launched, brothers and sisters, that there is a great sin and there is a great crime being committed, but it's not being done by the so-called defendants who interposed, who intervened to obey God by rescuing those unjustly sentenced to death. They were doing the government's job for them. Remember, civil government's obligation before God is to restrain evil, protect innocent life, and stop the shedding of innocent blood. Our government has refused to do that, and they use their power and authority to protect murderers that allow uh, for the destruction, the slaughter of innocent children made in the image of God. And so what I was sharing, it was the defendants, they were not the lawbreaker in this case. They were the law keeper. And, uh, and so our government, by supporting and defending and legalizing child sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood, they are the lawbreaker. And sure, you know, these defendants are going to go before the bar of justice in a man's court, right? And they may be found guilty. We don't know. And I do pray they work out a deal where they don't have to go to court. I don't want, I don't want these families to suffer fatherlessness. I don't want spouses to be left alone without their spouse. Amen. I want God to arise. I want God to deliver them out of their hand. But if indeed they go before man's bar, in this case, of injustice and be found guilty, just know. And please hear me on this, especially those of you who promote child sacrifice and the shedding of innocent blood, who defend it in, in our government. Just know one day you're going to stand before God's bar of justice. And those that you condemned, they're going to be free and they're going to be liberated forever. And those of you, lest you repent, you will stand before God on that great day and you will be condemned. You will be found guilty and you will go to God's eternal prison called hell. Understand that. There is a crime being committed. There is a sin being committed. But it's by our government and not by our Christian brethren. And so towards the end of the message, I just looked at uh, the New Testament and its revelation of redemptive suffering. And I went to Acts chapter 4. Let me get over there real quickly. Acts chapter 4. Hold on, brother. And I really wanted to highlight this passage of Scripture. It's so powerful. Of course, this is at the time where the gospel of the kingdom is kicking in. 
the Holy Spirit is being poured out and uh, and they're running afoul of the authorities, right? There's a great conflict, confrontation. The early church was saying there's another king, one called Jesus, and uh, the powers that be, both the religious authorities and the civil authorities, took great umbrage at that and was seeking to stop the early church from preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And so, you know, it, there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of confrontation. And so here in Acts chapter 4, uh, after going through one of those conflicts with the authorities, um, God's people gather together for a prayer meeting. And I want you to listen to these words. And being let go, they went down to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, you know, at that meeting Monday night, Christians from every, you know, different denominations, different theological camps, we were unified. We were all in one accord. And it was beautiful, brothers and sisters. It's so awesome when, when God blesses his people with that gift. And they said, Lord, you are God. And I brought up the fact that, you know, our tendency as Christians, when we're going through difficult times and problems and insurmountable odds, we have the tendency to make that so large in our mind, so great in our mind. And when we do that, we also tend to make God fairly small, fairly small. But when you look at the saints of old, when they were going through hardship and trial and tribulation and persecution, and they laid out their petitions before God, they made God great. They made him awesome. They made him very large, and their situation small in comparison to the problems that they were facing. And may I uh, suggest to you that's a good way to look at life. Important, especially when you're going through it. And so they're saying, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who, and now they're getting ready to quote one of my favorite Psalms, Psalms chapter 2, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, he's the anointed one, the anointed Christ, they've gathered against the Lord and his anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined to be done now, Lord. Look on their threats. And again, throughout redemptive history, when God's people 
were facing redemptive suffering. They would lay out the petition. They would even lay out the decrees that were arrayed against them to wipe them out. They would lay it out before the Lord, and they would say, God, look, God, see, God, hear, right? And so that's what they're doing in the book of Acts, laying it out. Look on their threats and grant to your servants with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now get this. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, what I tried to bring out in that, brothers and sisters, it's an amazing prayer on so many levels. Obviously, it's connecting Psalm chapter 2 and its fulfillment coming to pass in the book of Acts. That's huge, okay? Uh, incredible connection there. But the other thing is, again, how the early Christians related to God and persecution and the prospect of redemptive suffering. Because I'll be honest with you, when I faced similar things like that, I was asking God, would you be pleased to deliver me out of their hand and spare my family? You know, um, would you bring comfort? You know, uh, would you bring peace in the midst of the turmoil? But what, what's funny is that there's no hint of that in this prayer. They're not asking for personal deliverance. They're not asking God to save them from the persecution. They're actually asking for more authority, more power, more boldness, more signs and wonders. Of course, by saying that, that means they're going to get in more trouble with the powers that be. And like most people wouldn't approach things that way. In fact, one of the things that I shared with the church is like, you know, the church, like we want all the, the light, we want all the power, we want all the glory, we want God to manifest, we want his presence, you know, we want to see miracles again today, you know, we want all of that, but we don't want any suffering that may come with that. And I got to tell you, that, that, that's a fantasy world, brothers and sisters. That's, that's the church in La La Land. There is something about God's people crossing the line of obedience and putting themselves at risk to advance the gospel of the kingdom of the earth that, yes, brings about redemptive suffering, but then also that God arises and he intervenes and he does miraculous you know miracles in the world i mean it's it's just incredible but what i wanted the folks to see 
is their response to redemptive suffering. In this case, they're asking to get in a lot more trouble by God increasing whatever he's doing in and through their midst. And then, of course, when you come to Acts chapter 5, and this is after they've been threatened, they've been beaten, and they're warned to cease and desist preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, they didn't pout, they didn't whine, they didn't take up their marbles to go home and say, oh, God must not love us anymore, he's forsaken us. No, it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now, who in their right mind would rejoice when you're getting slapped down, right? When you're told to stand down, and yet Almighty God is telling you to stand up and continue to go forth. Well, perhaps these apostles and disciples remember the words of their Lord. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I mean, you look at the epistles of Paul, you know, when he's in the Philippian jail and he writes the epistle to the church at Philippi, that the, the, the historians, the, 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 the theologians throughout church history have called that epistle the epistle of joy, where he's in jail. He's suffering in jail, and yet he is telling those he's writing to, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Of course, that's Matthew 5, 11, and 12. And I brought up the example of Moses, you know, in his day, right? I mean, this guy is in the royal house. You know, he's a relative of Pharaoh, living high on the hog. He's got everything going for him. His life is mapped out and planned. You know, he's got all the advantages that royalty can afford you, right? But then he looks upon the affliction of his people, and the Bible says Moses chose to suffer. Again, who in their right mind chooses to suffer, but the scripture tells us he saw the greater reward, and so it was worth it. It was worth following the Lord. It was worth obeying the Lord. It was worth serving the Lord, even if that ran you afoul of human authorities and brought about the prospect of redemptive suffering. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I ended up uh, the message in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. And I'm going to go there real quick, and we're going to end this broadcast. Here we go. First, Peter, let me get to chapter 2. Here we go, down to 21, I believe it is. All right, so here's the uh, Apostle Peter encouraging the church 
And he says, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Here's the thing. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And so, brothers and sisters, I just encouraged the Christian rescuers, you know, you know, obviously, not just the world and the government, but even a large segment of the church are condemning them. You know, a lot of brethren I know are, are very critical of them. And um, so they're facing, you know, not just the threat of jail and long imprisonment away from their families. They're facing the the reviling of the world, and even the rejection of their own brethren. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot to carry in your soul and not be embittered by it, not be frightful and concerned, full of fear and worry and doubt, you know. Um, but what I try to encourage them is to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, because Jesus, obviously, he didn't, he didn't just preach the truth. He was truth personified. And there's nowhere in the scriptures where it, it even gives the hint that Jesus sought to dilute the truth, negotiate with the truth, you know, soften the blow of truth. Uh, he, he couldn't do it because he is truth, right? Just like God is love, you know, you know, Christ is wisdom. Well, he is the truth, the life, and the way, right? No man comes to the Father by him. So his very appearance is showing forth the mirror of truth. And, and, and because he preached the truth and stood for the truth, this brought about his demise in the world. Uh, this is what led to his crucifixion and the unjust court trial that condemned him to crucifixion. Okay? And again, even though he's facing uh, this tremendous suffering, he stood for the truth to the very end. And so... What do the powers that be, what do we and our sinful nature do to the Lord who brought about this mirror, his life, brought about this standard, this mirror, and then when we looked at him, when we looked into that mirror, what did we see? Well, we didn't see the beauty and the love and the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We didn't see how lovely he truly is, how beautiful he truly is. No, we saw our ugliness. We saw our sin. We saw our rebellion. We saw our depravity. Instead of humbling ourselves and breaking before the Lord God and confessing our sins and our rebellion, 
rebellion and our depravity, we smashed the mirror. We crucified him. Now, what's interesting about that, brothers and sisters, as he's suffering the pangs of crucifixion on the cross, what does our Lord do? What does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive sins. Why is he asking the Father to forgive them? Well, he was reviled, right? He was persecuted. He was condemned. He was crucified. And what did he do? He committed himself to his Father who judges righteously. Amen. And so, of course, my admonition to the brethren who are facing all these things, don't return Ebion for Ebion. Don't return curse for curse. The Bible is very clear on this. We are to love our enemies. We are to bless those who curse us. And we are to pray for those who despitefully use us and you know, brothers and sisters, we see these things in the scriptures, but pretty much we're never put in a position to live them out. And I, I got to tell you, one of the reasons why is we're not worthy to suffer persecution for his namesake, because we never put ourselves at risk for his kingdom, for his glory, for his great salvation in the earth. And so we ended up, brothers and sisters, gathering around the defendants, hugging them, loving them, praying for them. It was awesome. And so that's it, brothers and sisters, for today. So grateful here with us. And if you find any merit uh, in these messages, brothers and sisters, uh, could I encourage you to pass them on to your family, your friends, your 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 church brethren? Um, and I do pray it is a blessing to you and to those around you. Well, as usual, to next time, you keep pressing on to that high calling prize, and God bless you, saints. Till next time, keep pressing on. Bye bye.